knowledge and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, in 2002, I had the opportunity to sing Giuseppe Verdi's Requiem. I was part of a community course associated with the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh at the time. Verdi's Requiem is scored for double choir. So our 50 or so voices were joined for the performance with another community choir down in the Milwaukee area, plus the University Choir from UW-La Crosse. Over 150 voices strong were accompanied by 16-member orchestra, four professional musicians. Oh, and don't forget the Harold trumpets and balcony. The Requiem opens with a very short number, a short piece. It's an introit and period sung by the chorus and soloist. And then he gives the body, really the bulk is the second movement, which is over half the length of the piece. It opens with the words that are on the front cover of the bulletin. Dies vir, dies vila, solvet seculum in familia. Day of wrath, that day will dissolve the earth in ashes. Composed in 1874, Verdi is actually going back even farther taking 10 of the 19 verses from our sermon now. A dark song from an even darker age. Its author is disputed, but its theme, its theme is not. Judgment, final judgment, the day of Yahweh. From Zephaniah chapter 1, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. The hymn writer takes these words from the prophet and against Jerusalem and uses them to cast a shadow, an enormous shadow over the entire world, a shadow engulfing all of humanity of every age. We are faced with the inevitability day of Yahweh, the day of judgment, the day of divine wrath. I make no apologies. It is a difficult hymn to sing with its limping meter and tortured subject matter. I did cut the original 19 down to the, just the 10 that Verdi uses plus the last one. One of the omitted verses reads, when the judge his seat attaineth, and each hidden deed arraigneth, Nothing unavenged remains. Not just public sins that you and I commit, but the hidden ones. The ones we have trouble even confessing to ourselves. The ones that haunt us. The ones that not even God, the day of wrath, the day of mourning. Almost epitomizing the mood of the Middle Age, it remains central to the Catholic Requiem Mass until Vatican II, Horace Hummel observes. He continues, today we face the opposite extreme. Its neglect parallels the neglect not only ended churchier themes, but much of Old the Old Testament, especially the prophets as well, and ultimately themes of law, judgment, retribution, etc. The hymn is difficult to sing in part because we have lost the vocabulary, the proper categories to speak of God's final judgment. Why is that? Do we no longer believe in divine judgment? 
I have to go back to the 1941 hymnal. I don't remember even find this hymn. It was part of a nine-hymn section entitled Judgment. By the 1976 hymnal, that section had shrunk to just four hymns, not including Day of Wrath or Day of Mourning. In our current hymnal, the section is morphed into a section labeled End Times, which is dominated by themes of triumphalism and joy, not judgment and contract sorrow. David Adams suggests that we don't live under the awareness of divine judgment because we've swallowed the devil's own lie. And the lie is this, that life is all about the journey, not the destination. Pinterest and Christian bookstores are filled with this sentimentality. Now, please don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying or dismissing the importance of vocation in our daily lives or sanctified living in this age between the two comings of the Messiah. But that is not the text before us. Zephaniah calls us to the day of Yahweh's sacrifice. He's talking about the end, the telos, the end of the age. History, biblical history, is going somewhere. Our lives are not an endless cycle of summer and winter, planting and harvesting. That was the religion of Judah's neighbors, and what are the manifestations of her apostasy? Temple prostitution ensured the fertility of the earth, a hedge against next year's crop. Yahweh promises immediately before our text, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. The end of the age is about heaven and hell. There is no other alternative, no other option. All of us, individually, will be summoned and assigned. Hush, the prophet demands. Be silent before the Lord. The court is in session. The bailiff prepares to call the defendant. He has already searched out Jerusalem with lamps in verse 12. A very curious figure. A minister of God's omniscience. The day of Yahweh reaches out into every dark corner, every nook and cranny of creation, but especially the hidden recesses of my heart and yours. Feeling comfortable? Nope, not. The inevitability of the day of Yahweh is frightening. It causes us to cry out. I sang second tenor in that chorus along with, with three other gentlemen, and one evening at rehearsal, we divided into sectionals to work on a particularly challenging section of this Diaspira movement. And when we came back together, um, this section, the second tenor line was at or above the staff almost the whole time. And when we came back together as a complete chorus, the director had the entire tenor section, first and second, sing this part for them. The guy next to me literally shrieked the part out. There was this deathly silence in the rehearsal room. Finally, the director said, that was not pretty. No, but it captured the terror of divine judgment. All the suffering, all the pain that we experience in this life is only a prelude to hell. Paul paints a stark contrast between God's righteousness revealed through the gospel in verse 17 of Romans 1 and his wrath, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Likely Paul has in mind sins against the first three commandments which he names ungodliness. 
and sins against the last seven as unrighteousness. That, however, is not revealed directly, but through the consequences of those transgressions. Later in Romans, he will say that even all creation groans on account of our sinfulness. What is about to happen in Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day is nothing compared to what will happen on the day of God. On the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. It's strange language, I admit. Ralph Smith suggests that the people of Judah are going to become like sacrificial lambs for God's invited guests who probably are the enemy armies. On that day, a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. We are not king's sons or priests of Dagon leaping over the threshold. But their problem is still our problem. We are all sinners, unclean before God, and our iniquity is incompatible with God's holiness. Like darkness with light, or gasoline with fire, the ensuing conflagration is instantaneous and absolute. What shall I, frail man, be pleading? Who for me be interceding when the just are mercy needed and sent? Zephaniah opens the themes of universal judgment and then quickly focuses in on Judah and Jerusalem. It is no consolation to know that the sinners out there are going to get their just desserts. No, everyone must make account for his or her deeds, regardless. Judgment begins with the household of God. It starts here in the church. Each one of us must make account for the talents with which we have been entrusted. But his master answered him, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has, not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus far, gospel reading. It is God's alien work. Yet we must always remember that God's alien work, he is in the end alien. His proper work is the gospel. The law kills to make alive. The day of Yahweh is the end of this age, but it is absolutely the beginning of the next, when the reign of heaven will be realized in all its glory, in all the darkness and gloom that is various requiem. The fourth movement just jumps out. Sanctus, 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 dominus Deus sabaoth. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Paul captures this dead to alive transition, perhaps most fully in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are redeemed. God has poured out his wrath on his son. For you, instead of you. The suffering and pain of this life are four faces of hell. So also the joys we experience are a glimmer of what lies on the other side of the day of the 
I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8. The glory we can taste in the bread and wine. The body and blood of the supper, a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. A glory first given in the water of baptism and renewed through the words of absolution. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh the prophet. Yahweh has prepared feast. We do well to reflect on the role of sacrifice, particularly the sacrifice of atonement in the Old Testament. It served three purposes. It gains God's gracious acceptance for sinners. It obtains pardon for sins, a cleansing from sin's impurity, and it grants access to God. But it's astounding in this passage from the prophet Zephaniah is the role that Yahweh serves in this sacrifice. He has prepared the sacrifice. The roles are reversed. We are his guests, as our translations put it. In Hebrew, those who have been called the divine passive. He has consecrated us. He has set us apart as holy, declared holy. Through the sacrifice of his son, we have been accepted. He sees us. Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Through his son Jesus Christ, his both victim and priest, we have a gracious God, a clean conscience, and fellowship with him as our heavenly Father. In a moment we will pick up our sermon hymn with uh, stanza 8. In various versions of this, this section begins with the entire base section, 40 to 45 men, in unison, marked FF, fortissimo. King of terrifying majesty. Despite the, the thunder of the base section, this stanza is pure gospel. In more poetic language, it reads, King of majesty tremendous, who salvation, pre-salvation sends us, font of mercy, now befriend us. How is that possible? Because he has poured his wrath out on his son, for you and for me. Amen. I mean, the peace which surpasses all understanding. You guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, who life everlasting. We pick up our sermon in with that stanza. Here. 